Good morning, Oregon. I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on January 15th of 2012 under the headline, Coast Guard's Worst Columbia Disaster Started as Routine Rescue. It's part one in a two-part series on this particular incident. Here we go. It was the worst disaster in the history of the U.S. Coast Guard in Oregon. Three rescue boats, including two of the legendary unsinkable motor lifeboats, went out to rescue someone and none of them returned. Five Coasties died. And yet it all started as a routine rescue late in the afternoon on January 12th of 1961. At a little after 4 p.m., a radio call came in at the Cape Disappointment Life Station on the Washington side of the Columbia River entrance. Two Ilwaco men, brothers Bert and Stanley Bergman, had lost the rudder on their crab fishing boat, the 34-foot Mermaid, just when they needed it most while crossing the bar on their way back in. They'd dropped anchor, but the current was dragging them slowly toward Peacock Spit anyway. No problem. Conditions were pretty good for January on the bar. Winds in the 35-knot neighborhood, seas in the 10- to 12-foot range. There was a small craft advisory in effect, but nothing that would stop anything the Coast Guard had on the water, and the Weather Service was expecting to cancel that advisory around 5. Speed was critical, though. If the Mermaid hit the outside line of breakers on Peacock Spit, it would all be over. At least it would all be over for the Mermaid. The Bergman brothers would probably swim to shore. So the life station immediately sent two boats out to the rescue a 40-foot utility boat, and one of the Coast Guard's legendary 36-foot motor lifeboats. The fact that the 40-footer was sent demonstrates the utter unexpectedness of the disaster that was about to unfold. The 40-footers were fast, general-purpose boats built for protected waters, not for surf operations and bar rescues. But at this point, the weather was reasonable and the mission looked simple. They'd be back on shore with their grateful rescuees in a couple hours, right? Before continuing, I have to explain in more detail what it is that can make the Columbia River Bar so deadly. Essentially, it's three factors. Shallow water, swift current, and a steady, strong wind that, in winter at least, nearly always blows toward the north side of the river. The shallowness means the big, deep waves that have pulsed all the way across the Pacific Ocean start to get compressed into just a few feet of water, just like they do in the surf on the beach. When they do, the current coming out of the river sort of pushes their feet out from under them, creating a sort of circular swirl with the top moving shoreward and the bottom moving seaward. On a clear day, this swirling motion isn't even noticeable in the middle of the channel, especially if the tide is slack or ebbing and the water is at low summertime flow rates. But winter storms off the Columbia regularly generate hurricane-class wind speeds and whip up waves to match. When the seas get big and the river flow is high and the tide is coming in, you get some incredible breakers on the bar, breaking all the way across the channel up to 70 feet tall with a powerful undertow right in front of them. When a boat or small ship is tackling one of these waves, what can happen is the undertow can grab the boat by the taffrail as it goes up and pull the stern into the face of the wave while the top of the wave pushes the boat over. 
what sailors call a pitch pole or an end-over-end flipping. The hydraulic pressure this puts on a boat or ship is unbelievable, especially if the water is shallow enough for one end of the vessel to actually dig into the sandy bottom as it goes over. Ships have been known to actually break in half. As the waves come into the bar on a nice day, they form breakers in the shallows along each side of the channel. As the weather gets heavier, the breakers spread farther into the middle of the channel so that less of the water on the bar is left unbroken. When the weather gets really nasty, the waves break all the way across the channel, and boats and ships alike have to heave to and wait for it to settle down again. Only the Coast Guard's motor lifeboats are truly seaworthy in those conditions, and they almost expect to get rolled once or twice. Then there's the wind. It's almost always blowing out of the south-southwest, usually blowing hard. That means if you are trying to cross the bar and lose your propulsion, you're headed for Peacock Spit. Which is exactly what had happened, and was happening, to the mermaid on that day. The speedy 40-foot utility boat, of a design that looks somewhat reminiscent of the SS Minnow on Gilligan's Island, got across the bar and onto the scene first, and towed the mermaid far enough offshore to be out of danger from the breakers. Then rescuers and rescued conferred. The tide had turned and was starting to rough up the bar. So there were two options, they figured. First, they could take the Bergman brothers aboard the 40-footer and turn the mermaid loose to drift ashore wherever it wanted and bring everyone to the Columbia River lightship anchored several miles offshore. The other possibility was to tow the mermaid to the lightship. At this point, nobody knew how much trouble they were in. The seas were high, but not bad by bar standards. The Bergman brothers naturally didn't want to lose their boat, so the decision was made by default to tow the boat to the lightship and moor it there until daylight and ebb tide the next day. And here we come to the crucial point in the story. Because somewhere in the anonymous chain of command of the U.S. Coast Guard, sometime earlier, some nameless functionary had ordered that rescue vessels would no longer carry drogues. A drogue is a special sea anchor designed to make a vessel track straight in the water and stay pointed upwind. Because the mermaid had lost its rudder, a drogue was needed to make it tow straight behind the 40-footer rather than yawing out to one side and taking seas on its beam, which on a night like this was shaping up to be would probably roll it. The Coasties tried trailing crab pots out behind the boat to increase its drag. This worked okay, but slowed the pace of the boats to the point of barely making headway. They would have been all night making their way to the light ship. They decided they needed more power, and weather conditions were by this time getting really pretty bad. So they called up the biggest, toughest, most powerful rescue boat the Coast Guard had at its disposal in 1961, the 52-foot motor lifeboat Triumph, stationed on the Oregon side at the Point Adams Life Station. The Triumph, with six Coast Guard surfmen aboard, chugged out into the towering seas to lend a hand and take over the tow. Of those six men, five would not come back. We'll talk about how that played out in next week's column, which will be posted one week from today. Key sources in this story included works by Dennis Noble and Erica Wisensee. Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. 
This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatorgan.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. Bye now.